Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Gender Studies. My name is Julie Fetty. I'm host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Nanxiu Qian, the author of Politics, Poetics, and Gender in Late Qing China. The subtitle is Shui Shao Hui and the Era of Reform, which has been recently published by Stanford University Press. Welcome, Nanxiu. Hi, Julie. Thanks so much for being with us. So let me just tell listeners about who you are, and then we'll get into the story of your book. Okay, thanks. Nanxiu is a professor of Chinese literature in the Chow Center for Asian Studies here at Rice University. She's a colleague of mine, and we work down the hall from each other. Her fields are classical Chinese literature. Uh, She specializes in women and gender, Chinese intellectual history, and transnational study of traditional Eastern Asian cultures, as well as comparative literature. Nanchu Qian received her MA from Nanjing University and her PhD from Yale. She's published in both English and Chinese. Her previous book is called Spirit and the Self in Medieval China, and she has been a co-author and co-editor of several books. She has also published poems, essays, plays, and a newly completed traditional Chinese opera following the life of the most famous Chinese woman poet, Li Qingzhao. Her research has received grants from the National Endowment for Humanities and the ACLS. So welcome again, Nanchu. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for your very generous introduction. Well, it's really just a biography of you, Nanchu, so (laughs) you have a good reason to be proud. So would you tell us, how did you come to write this book, Politics, Poetics, and Gender in Late Qing China? Yes, um, it evolved from my first English monograph. Uh, You just told the audience, it's uh, called Spirit and Self in Medieval China. Um, this monograph was uh, a study on an early medieval Chinese classic called A New Account of Tales of the World, which recorded the free spirit of the early medieval time, and that's from 220 to 420 CE. And it has a chapter on independent and strong-minded intellectual women, and it was titled Worthy Ladies. Um, this worthy ladies, this, this chapter then later formed a tradition and uh, it has had a decisive impact on later women, particularly intellectual literate women. When I did research after I finished my first monograph, when it was uh, in press, I started research on my next pro- book project to compare this worthy ladies tradition with another more conservative Confucian moral abided exemplary women tradition, which was uh, uh, basically uh, written by men in official histories. Um, So these two traditions fascinated me because only by Working on the two traditions, could I really paint a fuller picture about Chinese women to change the uh, general impression like uh, Chinese women in the tradition were obedient, subservient? Not really, because we also had a very open-minded, strong-willed, those kind of intellectual, learned women. During my research, I... Uh, ran across a book called Biographies of Foreign Women, written and compiled, translated and compiled by Xie Shaohui 
and her, her husband, which was published in 1906. And I was immediately attracted by it because, number one, I didn't know that we had such an early introduction and systematic introduction of 300 basically Western women to the Chinese audience. The book was forgotten. I didn't know, even though I, I was a scholar. Number two, I didn't know that uh, a woman writer, Xu Shaohui, could be so outspoken when she, uh, when she published, uh, she, she initiated the project, demanded her husband to do research through several hundred books, and then she compiled the book. She made the uh, frame of the book. And she, I discovered the quarrel between the couple from their prefaces. They each wrote a preface and published with this volume. From the prefaces, I could see how daring this woman was back in that early time period. And that totally subverted my understanding of women in the tradition as subservient. And I could tell that she was independent um, and a, a, a woman who has had her own ideas, purpose. She played this um, think, leading thinker for women reformers of the time, which we, the history, totally missed. This is a part of history being forgotten. That was when I got interested in her. But uh, the reason that it really triggered out and pushed me into writing on her, uh, there is another interesting story. Would you like me to tell you about? I'd love to hear it. Okay. Um, I, my original project was to compare the two traditions, so I didn't really have a plan to work on her. She, I, I, I could have used her biographies of foreign women as one of my uh, materials, but not her. But then I attended a wrong conference. I was supposed to go in October 1997 at the University of Colorado border for a conference titled uh, WBAOS, meaning West Branch of Association for Oriental Studies. Hmm. I received a letter from WBAAS, meaning West Branch of Association for Asian Studies. Without looking into it, the letter carefully, I applied for that uh, WBAAS, thinking it was WBAOS, submitted my abstract, uh, booked the flight. I thought everything was taken care of until I received an email from somebody I didn't even know saying, sorry, you are too late, we, are, we cannot accept your abstract. And I was very, very surprised. And I returned an email back saying, how dare you? I was <laughs> attending this conference on a yearly basis. Nobody said a no to me. And, uh, and uh, you know, what should I do now with the flights? And the guy said, if you want to join us, it's okay. We're taking good care of you because you are known. Uh, falling into the south. Nobody takes care of you. So just be grateful, okay? If you want to come, you come. <laughs> so I went. And it's late October. It was snowing. My boots are leaking. And I was crying. And then this one morning at 8 o'clock, we had a session. 40 people in the room. And we really walked in the snow for 10 minutes to get to the meeting place. And then after two papers, we had nothing to do because two people, presenters, didn't even bother to come. So the chair said, oh, now we are trapped here. It's hard for us to go back to the hotel in the snow. So who wants to read a paper? And everybody looks at everybody else. Then somebody pointed her finger to me saying, she has a paper. She didn't get uh, accepted. She was crying. 
So everybody was looking at me saying, okay, why don't you read your paper? I said, come on, you didn't accept my paper. And uh, my paper is in classical time period. And this meeting is on modern time period. So, no. And they said, okay, so what's in your hand? You have a paper here in your hand, right? And that was the last chapter of my previous monograph. And it, it, it was on the time period, because the monograph, this New Account of Tales of the World, this book has many, many imitations. And that chapter was on the late, the, the, the very last imitation creating the modern time. So they said, see, it fits our conference, so please read it for us. I said, I have 40 pages, impossible, I can shorten it to 15, page, uh, to 15 minutes talk, no way. Then they said, okay, let's vote. So they voted. Oh, anonymously saying I should read paper. <laughs> That's the first time I tasted American democracy. <laughs> so I read the paper and the people got interested in whatever I had to say. They came to invite me to next year's AS. The, not a WBAS, but a real AS in Washington, D.C. And I, I thought, okay, maybe I can use this topic of foreign women biographies to present. And it was well accepted. And then I was invited to publish the paper. So I decided to do more research on this woman. I went to the Library of Congress next door to the meeting place, and there I found a huge collection of her poetry and prose in the traditional style. Quickly going through it, I found, my gosh, I found a piece of treasure. She is really somebody I have to spend my next decade on her. Mm -hmm. Forget about my comparison of the two traditions. I have to work on her first. That's the reason I, I, I started this topic. And it indeed took me more than a decade to finish it. Well, congratulations. As it's Thank finished you. now, and, and what, a, what a wonderful anecdote about the hazards of research and the hazards of conference attendance. <laughs> I know. That's our life, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so tell us about um, the arguments of your book. What did you, what did you want to tell about um, Sui Shahui? Okay. Um, what? Okay, let me start from here to give you a general idea for, about the structure of the book. <laughs> Overall, in my introduction, I want to uh, to tell my my readers why this book. What's the purpose for me to write this book? Two purposes. First, by writing this book, uh, focusing on Xu Shaohui and. Uh, her intellectual networks is not just her. She was among a group of reformers, men and women forgotten by the modern time period. So by working on them, I want to fill out a huge gap in the transition from the traditional China into its modern times at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, from the perspectives of women and gender. You see, um, by studying her and her intellectual works, we discover an alternate path, a path, path, other than violent revolutions and dictatorships that have dominated modern China. We also find a women's active participation in the related social, political, and cultural reforms. Both have been largely forgotten and ignored in modern Chinese historiography in China and in the West. Second, by working on Xu Shaohui and her friends, I want to emphasize the importance of literature, especially classical Chinese poetry. I argue, you know, since the early 20th century, Classical Chinese tradition being severely criticized by nationalists, arguing like China 
was beaten up by Western imperialism and Japanese imperialism simply because our culture was backward, our tradition was awful. So everything was destroyed. And this past 100 years, particularly under the communist regime, the destruction of our culture has been horrible. But I would argue, in fact, classical Chinese, the Chinese tradition and the classical Chinese poetry can intimately convey the intellectual's response to the changing world and hence can offer us authentic information about the transformation of both the world and the intellectuals themselves. So when the, this traditional literature being forgotten or, or, or destroyed, we miss that a very important knowledge and information to understand that time period. Um, women's political response especially, because of their marginalized positions, women's political response can offer more objective viewpoints than men's more ideologically framed ideas. So that's my introduction. Uh, should I continue? Yes. Well, tell us this. Tell us about the part one with the with the yes. marriage trope that you that you oh. use throughout the first three chapters of part one. Okay. Sure. The book is divided into two parts. Part one is the making of future reformers, and the subtitle is a marriage between the two cultures. So this marriage is both literally and metaphysically. Um. Part two would be revitalizing the worthy ladies' tradition because I would argue in my first part how uh, women reformers became women reformers because they continued this great worthy ladies' tradition. Okay. Part one covers from 1866 to 1897. Why this time period? Xu Shao was born in the year 1866. And uh, her life before 1897, before the reform movement started, in fact reflected the, a culture called the Ming, writing women culture. And this culture inherited from world ladies' idea of China's waiting time period from 220 CE to 420 CE the subject of my first English monograph. This um, worthy lady's idea evolved from the Taoist perfected person idea. Perfect person is an androgynous personality who embodies nature and who nurtures and protects the world with her motherly care, strengthened by her talents and quick judgment enabled by her broader learning. And this one has a special impact on Ming. Ming means today's Fujie, Xiu Shaohui's hometown, on these women, on the culture formed in the late imperial time period. They inherited this and then prepared them to be strong-minded, very alert towards world changes, always eager to learn more for the purpose to protect the family, the culture, and even the state. And I have many, raised many examples to show how strong these women were. Now, very interestingly, at the same year when Xiu Shaohui was born, another baby called and and the court was also born. And this baby is called a Fuzhou Navy Yacht. That's Chinese, uh, uh, China, uh, uh, the Manchu state, down to the common scholars, their response to Western uh, uh, in, invasions, because China was beaten up uh, during the Opium Wars by Western cannons and uh, guns and ships. So the Chinese uh, courtiers 
you know, government and a, and a common intellectuals, they decided that we need our own navy yard. But this navy yard actually uh, was with very uh, much help from the uh, French uh, uh, technicians and uh, uh, scholars, and also uh, British technicians and scholars. And then the founder of this Navy Yard, Shen Baozhen, the, the Minister of, of Navy, also decided to open a school affiliated to this Navy Yard. And this school and the Navy Yard itself together, they formed a combination of traditional Chinese learning and Western learning. All the students there from local poor scholarly family, because the rich kids would have tutors to go for uh, civil examinations. They wouldn't bother to learn Western knowledge. Poor scholarly kids, poor scholar family kids would uh, come to this school. And uh, Xie Shaohui's brother-in-law, Chen Jitong, and then um, her future husband, Chen Shoupeng, both graduated from this Navy school. They had to spend six to nine years to, in this school, and then after their graduation, they had to go to the West. That's how Chen Jitong became a diplomat in Paris for 16 years. Chen Shoupeng also spent three to four years in Europe. Students sent there, graduates sent there, also had to go to school to learn both um, Western cultures and Western technologies and sciences. So this school and this Navy Yard really trained the first Chinese um, diplomats, scientists, translators, and all that. It's a great, perfect combination of both traditions. And then these poor kids, after they graduated from school, they had to get married. They married the local women, and uh, of course, intellectual women, writing women. That's how the third chapter will talk about the marriage of the two, and literally and metaphorically. Xie Shaohui was married to Chen Shoupeng. This marriage exposed Xie Shaohui, originally a very good, already a good writer, good uh, uh, po- uh, poet. Now she's opened to the West. And Chen Shoupeng, during his three to four years in the West, sent back many beautiful gifts. And every gift, he would attach to it some explanations about its uh, uh, scientific or historical cultural significances. So would you like to uh, uh, read a poem that uh, can show both her uh, knowledge newly and newly acquired a knowledge about Western science and at a point also shows her and, and the passionate love and attachment to her husband. Yes, yes. Would you read it in Chinese and then I could write, uh, read it in English? You read it first in English, now I read it in Chinese. Okay. I'll could you also it. explain the topic? Would you like to? Yes, you, you do so. I do. Okay. So this poem is a poem written after the husband is in the back, a uh, sweet watch. And that watch, of course, is beautiful, inlaid with uh, diamonds or things like that. And she really loved it. In particular, the husband also inscribed on this watch uh, an inscription, beautiful inscription and which she incorporated into her poem. So why don't you read the poems, uh, Julie? Okay. I'll read the first stanza in English. Sure. And it goes like this. Mm. See the watch hands turning round and round, like the water clock in the Wan Palace. Tenderly, it delivers a light tick-tock, marking each brief moment. Inside the axis shines the splendor of metal, there is also an inscription of classical elegance, quote, one heart, though 10,000 miles apart, unquote. Terse words of deep affection keenly touch my innermost feelings. Yeah, thank you, Julie. Let me read it in Chinese. 
碳团峦循环旋绕，宛若原始功劳。丹默默，闻声轻叩，瞬息能分时候。居住中寒，京京外溢，况有名文咒。饶古雅，万里同心，雨剪一身，感入肝肠凋零。So that's it. It's really from my Chinese eyes. I could, I, I couldn't do justice to the original beauty of the Chinese poem.、Um, It's beautiful, and she wrote that. In response to her husband sending her this Swiss watch、um, from abroad while he was away, right?、Um, yes. In, engaging in Western culture, and she, in this poem, expresses her admiration for Western technology, which exhibits her own openness as well to outside culture. Indeed, indeed. So, and the, the, also this this watch, because you can tell the time so precisely, kind of just serves. On the one hand, tell her, "Oh, time goes so fast," and my, I'm getting older. Because the later poem will will talk about this. That's the worry of a woman. I'll lose my beauty when she comes back. But on the other hand, it makes me feel, "Oh my gosh, the time goes so slowly. Waiting for him is so unbearable." The entire poem is three stanzas, really beautiful. Yes.、Yeah. Okay. Now, before we move on to Chapter Four,、um, Nanshu, could you just back up and tell us a little bit about Shui's、um, brother-in-law Chen Jigtong, who lived so many years in France, ultimately became a kind of emissary for Chinese culture in Europe,、um, and he published many books、um, explaining Chinese culture to to the French and to the to the West in general, and so. Can you just tell us about that openness? How extraordinary was this family at that time? Sure,、um, Chen Jitong, the brother-in-law, really was a great influence on Xie Shaohui. Now, Chen Jitong, as I said, went to school as the first、um, class of a student, and he he is、um, originally he was assigned to learn.、Um, How to make ships, and、uh, his major foreign language was was French. He was so such an outstanding student. And eventually, when his fellow students were sent out to France in 1877 to continue their study, he was among them to continue his study, but assigned to study law, French law or Western law, history, and. Political science, and there, he was also assigned to be the secretary, to be the assistant to the director who took students there. So he was very important, a very trusted. That started his diplomatic career. He went there. He befriend, befriended all the important men there, including the founder of the Third Republic of France. Um. And many、uh, scientists,、uh, historians,、uh, and all that. He published eight books, six in French and two in English, to introduce Chinese culture to the West.、And、in all these books, he defended Chinese culture. He especially told the world how wonderful or writing women were. He criticized the Western、uh, despise against their blue socks. He told the world, like、uh, our women, if they knew how to write, they would immediately raise up their status quo. But that really something new to the world because the world of his time had some bad impressions about China about.、Uh, You know the abuse of Chinese women, particularly the bond feed problem. I think Chen Jitong made an effort for the world to know about China, and he was extremely successful. His book, his major work called "The Chinese Painted by Themselves," 
is a response to Western sketches about the Chinese so-called Chinese characters of China or Chinese people. Was reprinted in two years, eleven times, translated into English at the same year. That was nineteen. No, no, sorry, eighteen eighty-four. Translated into English, Portuguese, German, Spanish, and uh, um, his other books too. Now in every major library in the West, in Paris, in. London in Washington D.C. in Berkeley in Stanford, they all have his collections, acceptable in China. And very unfortunately, why he was forgotten? I'll try to explain at the end. He's being forgotten just the same as Xu Shaohui was forgotten because they represented another path for China to change a rather peaceful, smooth, and.、Uh, More towards the constitutional、um, and republican state.、Mm-hmm. But、uh, the other thing to show his success was that he married two French women at the same time. <laughs> Those who were mad in love with him, and、uh, I have, as I talked in my book,、uh, why he was so attractive. He is. Yeah, as a prisoner, and they accompanied him back to China and met Sui, of course. And Sui, along with one of these French wives,、um, developed this campaign for women's education, right? That you discuss in chapter four. Yes, yes. So why、you. don't you tell us about that? So her her brother in law, her husband, bring back many Western ideas into China. She's right at the forefront of of receiving that kind of information from the outside, and she's already engaged in her own reformist projects. Yes, yes. Thank you. That's good. A、uh, good, good、uh, transition from part one to part two. Part two, as I just said, revitalizing the worthy ladies' tradition,、uh, focuses on Xu Shaohui and her women comrades from the year eighteen ninety eight to ninety eleven. Okay, chapter four immediately got into a campaign Xu Shaohui participated in at the invitation of her brother in law and her husband. What happened was, um. Eighteen ninety-four, the Sino-Japanese War took place, and that war totally destroyed Chinese confidence in themselves because China and 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 Japan began their reform towards reform reformation towards modern time period transition towards modern time period about the same time, but Japan. After the war, Japan showed them its muscles. Really, you you know, it's a wrong observation, wrong judgment. By only judging by the military part, unfortunately, both the Japanese government and Chinese government took that seriously. Well, it was serious enough, but not. My argument is, Chinese men should not take that defeat as the symbol like we should eliminate. All our traditions,、mm-hmm. but by all means, they said, "Okay, now only by transforming technology and sciences, not enough. We have to change our political system, which was right. But how to change it? For which purpose? That's very debatable. And men also another good move for them was we also have to educate our women. But the motivation of educating Chinese women was also wrong." Because,、uh, like the leading reformer, main reformer Liang Qichao, extremely famous. You know, before I wrote this book, the previous scholarship on this time period, the transition, the late imperial China into modern time period from late nineteenth century to mod- to early twentieth century, exclusively focused on Liang Qichao and his teacher Kang Youwei. I was about the first one to change the major focus from these main reformers to others, to women reformers and supporters such as Chen Jitong, Chen Shoupeng, etc.、Mm-hmm. So these male reformers, they said, particularly 
particularly Liang Qichao, he published an essay on women's education in the early 1897. He said, China is backward precisely because our women, half of our population, are lazy, idle, stupid. They don't want to go out to work. They bother as women, uh, men down. They made China backward. You know, he's repeating the conventional discourse, always blaming women as troublemakers. Mm-hmm. And I think this is common, right? You have Helen of Troy. We have many farm fathers in our tradition to blame. Mm-hmm. So it's like a modernized blame on women. And uh, so we, have, we need this campaign. Well, Xie Shahui, when, when men sketched, you know, the campaign's major purpose is to, was to, to establish a, a girls' school. You know, we had a girls' school before that, but by missionaries. This would be the first girls' school opened by Chinese, and uh, uh, they planned to do it uh, in their own, because missionary schools were teaching foreign subjects. They plan this one should do it on our own terms. Now, when they sketched all these provisional principles and regulations, all that, Chen Jitong and another leader, Jing Yanshan, they said, wait a minute, we need to ask for women's opinions. By the time, because they want to follow the Western models, they had uh, uh, Chen Jitong's uh, the first French wife, uh, uh, her Chinese name is Lai Ma Yi. I, I find her French name as well. And uh, she was already signed up. She already signed up to, to be part of it. But uh, Chen Jitong and, uh, and Jing Yuanshan said, we also need to ask for opinions from Chinese women's side. And that's really a very wise decision. Thus, Xie Shahui published a long essay in response to and made many, many suggestions from her viewpoint. And in this long essay, published in the newspapers, published in several newspapers, she made clear. She immediately, at the very outset, she said, it's very unfair to call us lazy, stupid, etc., we previously we followed your men your your men's instructions to stick home because they had a segregation law they had a, this inner outer domains which was not entirely wrong. Um, please read uh, Susan Mann Dorothy Kuhl's books on late imperial China. But for a yeah, agricultural society, women stayed home, but they were doing sewing, weaving, silkworm feeding and educating kids. Mm-hmm. Well, those were real jobs for them. And she said, we did these wonderful jobs. And we also, many of us, also managed to learn. And we had an excellent, outstanding pose. In fact, Lady Imperial China produced more than 6,000 volumes, uh, 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 collections of women's poetry and anthologies. Mm-hmm. But forgotten by the modern times. Uh, she said, we did a wonderful job. Now, okay, you want a girl's school? Sure, we want to come out to take education. But our education is not just, we won't be satisfied by just uh, to learn some basic uh, things to, uh, to make a living for us. No, not enough. We want to be on the equal basis, take education the same as you men are taking. And uh, we want to have all the great updated knowledge past, present, Western, and Chinese. Mm-hmm. Then the purpose is for us to walk out of our household, to stand on the equal ground with you men, to be selected by the state, to serve the state. So it's an open demand that uh, to have equal educational and political rights with men. And uh, her idea was got an enthusiastic uh, response from fellow women reformers. 
lead together. They formed, the, organized the first women's society, which had the first ever Chinese women、uh, meeting conference. I would have called it in Shanghai、uh, on December the sixth, eighteen ninety seven. One hundred twenty Chinese women. One hundred twenty Westerners signed up. Westerners, we had men and women, and they were extremely supportive. And Western women and Chinese women, Western women were diplomats, journalists, and missionary wives. And they and Chinese women, they called each other worthy ladies, and they called each other sisters. And these worthy ladies, so.、Um... We're talking about the network, social and educational networks of Sway and her sisters-in-law. Yes, sisters and and all the other women and men too.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really this is really remarkable moment. The moment when women really walk out into the public space, because originally they had a. Precedents too, you know, worthy ladies in the Weijing. There's two hundred twenty to four hundred twenty CE. Women already participated in diplomatic,、uh, no, sorry, philosophical debates of the time, but、uh, only behind the windows or screens. But there was one. There, there were several occasions they walked into men's space and debated with men and、uh, won the debate. Extremely difficult philosophical debates. So we they had these precedences, but then forgotten. And towards the late imperial period, women became more and more confined. Until now, Xiu Shaohui and her fellow women comrades once again they walked into the public space and they used the even popular media, you know, news media, to publish their opinions. And then they organize. The,、uh, they publish their own women's journal. That's the first one. And this own women's journal,、uh, Xiu Shaohui served as a leading contributor, and she published the inaugurational issue editorial. And in this editorial, she openly asked for women, ask women to break the inner outer domains to work together with men.、Uh, For the reform、uh, projects, so it's really a very remarkable moment. And then they also established their their、uh, women's school. Everything was handled by women. So women play their own agents, their own thinking leaders, the, and they had their own agendas. That's that their agenda is. They want to put their the improvement of themselves ahead of the empowering. Of the nation versus men's very nationalistic orientations is very remarkable. One it is, and the journal was remarkable in and of itself,、um, and it lasted a mere one hundred days, perhaps. But the school lasted somewhat longer. Can you tell us about the school? What kind of education was offered to girls? Yes, thank you. The school was a combination of both Chinese and Western educations. You know, they published those illustrations of the school on their women's journal, and has this beautiful classroom scene. You can see Western map, Western sphere, as well as Chinese books in it. And they also published. Uh, illustrations about how women you borrowed Western technology to improve their、uh, women's work, such as silk,、uh, silkworm feeding, sewing,、uh, weaving, all that. So it's really a very exciting moment when women were opened to the West. And the journal itself published the women's essays, both in vernacular language and、uh, classical tra- traditional、uh, style. And poetry, and uh,、um, they also had news from the West about Western women.、Uh, yeah, it's extremely exciting. The most important thing is everything was written and uh, and uh, or illustration illustrated by women.、Mm. This is totally different from later women's journals when men took over. And、uh, although it's called、uh, women's journals, but we only. We could only read men's voices from it. Very 
very few women's voices that could be heard. This is really a delightful chapter, chapter four on uh, Shanghai um, campaigns for women's education. And from what I understand, it was selected, is this correct, by um, the SAT board for um, an excerpt for one of the tests? Oh, AP test. For the AP test. By the college board. Yes, yes, yes. That was interesting. They got, they emailed me saying there is one long uh, poem published on this women's, uh, women's journal, and that express women's desire for reform, for equal, equal rights, and many, many things, even um, marriage of free will. That's really revolutionary. You know, Chinese tradition was arranged marriage. Yes. So the college board asked for me to give them to release the copyright. And they said, you know, this is a nonprofit thing, so please don't charge us. And I could have the choice to charge them, right? They would uh, they ask for 15 years contract, and they would uh, print 1 million copies each year. So, Judy, had I asked for just one cent for each copy, I could be rich, right? You could retire from <laughs> academia. <laughs> so I said, oh, of course, I was so honored. Of course, I wouldn't charge anything. I would love that our kids would read about the Chinese women of that time to show they were on the same page with their Western sisters of that time. Yes, well, it's it's an honor indeed. So let's move on to chapters five and six about Shui Xiaohui's um, openness to the West. Tell us, tell us about that and particularly her biography of foreign women. Yes, thank you. Now, the problem with the reform movement was the men's reform movement was it was terminated when Yang Qichao, Kang Youwei, they became very impatient. Then they put the emperor and the emperor's dowager into conflict. The emperor's dowager, motivated by her selfishness and brutality, ordered six reformers to be executed. And six reformers were very closely related to Xiu Shaohui and her family. So Xiu Shaohui could have been scared to death after hearing this bad news. But no, no way. This strong-minded woman, she immediately could tell the problem. She wrote a poem immediately to criticize the country saying something that Kanye Wei didn't understand enough how to how to um, proceed with the reform. And she didn't really agree with the reform agenda in the first place, right? And she said, although six good friends lost their lives, execution, very brutal, I also discussed that one of them was also married to Xiu Shaohui's good friend girlfriend, and uh, that ended in very tragic uh, scenario, because the girl later, just 23 years old, almost like 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 a starved herself to death, to die for the husband. That's another page of the story, but uh, let me come back to Xiu Shaohui. Xiu Shaohui said, no, our reform is not over. We have to continue. So, you know, not just her, you know, the other women teachers, they, although the newspaper was terminated, they still persisted for to publish another four issues until finally they had to, to stop because the major um, providers um, were all arrested. They didn't have money and didn't have the venue to publish the journal anymore. They somehow managed to continue the girls' school for two years, but eventually they had to close the school. But don't worry, because the school, the journal, already input the seeds, and uh, pretty soon, girls' schools, women's journals came back, would come back. Although, as I just said, the, the orientation later became increasingly nationalistic. That's another page of the story, mm-hmm. not a really my focus here. My focus is with continual reform efforts. Now he's, she said, okay, during the campaign, men ask us to follow the Western model. 
And 学校会应地的 ask for a Western model. Okay, you, Yang Qichao, you told us that we should follow Western women. They got education. They became learned, so they became very capable citizens for the country. Now, give us a good example. And Yang Qichao said, "Oh, Joan of Arc." And Xu Hao said, "Wait a minute, Joan of Arc was illiterate. She's not a learned woman. I need a real learned like women through education. They become learned, talented." And they could serve the country, the family, the local community well. I need those kind of examples. Since men, many reformers couldn't provide any example, Xu Shaohui turned back to her husband, saying, "Okay, you do the research." Because Xu Shaohui couldn't read foreign languages, her husband could. You do the research; I'll do the writing. So the husband. And research through several hundred books. I I even located many of them in our founder library, and then、um, they together worked on seven hundred twenty days on this book. Every night, they they were busy people. They had jobs to do. So we had to take care of five kids, and also attending her in-laws. So Xu Shaohui said, "Okay." They worked every night, and the husband would read from oral translate from the original resource,、uh, original sources. She shall we jotted down the notes, then put them together into a volume. When she shall we compiled it, the husband and wife had many fights about how to classify them, which standards we should use there, and、uh, please read my book. You'll see how interesting. And、their argument is not that they should have even dare to publicize the arguments itself. Tells us a lot about this woman, about her uh, 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 courage and desire to be on the equal ground with men, with particularly with her husband. The volume introduced over three hundred women, classified into twelve categories. From the、uh, sovereign to writing women, so mo- about a、um, over one hundred were those women scholars, poets, novelists, writers. That's the purpose, major focus, and uh, um, um, including some uh, uh, math- mathematicians,、uh, astronomers,、uh, scientists. The Western world. Only got to know them in the nineteen seventies,、mm-hmm. but、uh, yeah, I have hard evidence there. Wow! So this biography of foreign women, published by Sway and her husband, is is quite、uh, extraordinary too. And、uh, as well, they've translated a number of scientific and technological.、Um, Information right into Chinese from from the West, but introducing it to China via literature, right? So I'm thinking of Jules Verne and their translation of Around the World in Eighty Days. Yes,、um, that's fascinating.、Um, Around the World in Eighty Days was published sometime in eighteen in the eighteen eighties, right?、Yeah. And in the and Chen Shoupeng. Got to read it probably in the West, and he told her wife about this book. So they decided to translate it into Chinese, and、uh, that was their first publication of a transnational work in 1990. Okay, and they meant this to be a textbook for the Chinese to understand Western civilizations and history. And yeah, and the book they added many many footnotes. They、uh, preserved like、uh, they transliterated those uh, uh, names of places, people, newspapers. But they also preserved the original language for people to know exactly what kind of language it was, and、uh, and the, the for people kind of exposure. 
to Chinese people about foreign languages. The most interesting part was about it is the uh, 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 geography, uh, astronomy, and uh, um, technology, and how to build uh, railroads. All that the railroad was back then in China was still a very new thing. The most interesting part. Uh, Moment was their attitude towards the, the Mormons, and they kind of defended Mormons. That was another interesting chapter about how they tried to enlighten Chinese people about Western history. The Mormons, because one after another, the Mormon leaders seemed to be persecuted by the Chinese government. Not a problem remind them of the six martyrs being killed by the Manchu. Government. So here you do see a very interesting moment that Xiao Shahuyan and her husband stood by marginalized groups of people. Uh, right or wrong, I think that's open for readers to understand. The other important thing is that she kind of twisted a little bit of translation in order to make the, the female character there. The female character originally. In uh, uh, in Jules uh, in Jules, Jules Verne's version, was quite a mute, but she, under her translation, she became a, a feminist, standing up, um, courageous to claim her love, and uh, at one point in the uh, in the train, she even uh, pick up pistols to defend um, the passengers. That's a very interesting moment. She also translated a romantic story, and by um, uh, by a woman, British woman writer, called the uh, um, uh, Ellen Fowler, and that's so Im- uh, amazing. They could publish a book, uh, just publish. They could translate a book and have it published in two years. Like that book was uh, was published in in London was uh, in. 1889, no, 18, 1899, and they had it translated, published in Shanghai, uh, 1901 already. And the remarkable moment is that uh, she took this advantage in her translation to input something about Western political system. In uh, foreign women biographies, she created a goddess world and make it a Republican, a women's state for women to escape from men's brutality. And uh, the double thread at the end, she twisted ending by promoting a Republican system, uh, equal rights, all that. It's cute. You this know, it's a British novel. Yeah, it's a British novel. Mm-hmm. I, I had all these comparisons there. And uh, uh, and the other important thing is, she also used a Chinese classical Chinese style, you know, parallel prose, poetry, and uh, classical novel style. But uh, try to make it more and more e- easier and easier for people to read. She used this classical literary style to introduce Western sciences and and the technology. Interesting. Tell us, we're running out of time, then. Should tell us quickly about. Um, your the topic last- of chapter eight, Shui's poetic response to late imperial reforms. So, um, yes. the, you know, we have the end of the hundred days and it turned very bloody. And how did she use poems to express her thoughts on politics? Yes, she used her poems basically to criticize. The, she's very courageous because uh, at the time, even men, they're not. The most uh, reform-minded men, they're not criticized the Empress Dowager. But she and her family, they openly criticized this brutality in their poetry. And uh, her last 10 years overlapped with the last mental efforts to for reform because uh, Immediately after uh, the Empress Dowager cracked down the uh, reform movement, then Boxer Rebellion took place. 
the Emperor Dowager stupidly declared war to all the eight nations. I guess everybody probably is familiar with this very stupid time period and this piece of picture. Then eight joined forces entered Beijing. The Emperor's Dowager took, kidnapped his son, the Emperor, adopted son to escape. When she finally came back, she kind of understood that she had to continue the reform. So she did a reform even more than the reformers wanted to do. But it was very selfish reasons. She wanted to survive, understandably. Gradually, Xu Shaohui's family supported a few courtiers and important statesmen of the time to issue constitutional reform. This basically Chinese courtiers, Chinese statesmen, Chinese Chinese, you know, the Manchu regime was non-Chinese regime, another quite a complicated picture of Chinese history. But they wanted to do a kind of British constitutional model, meaning giving more power to the parliament and the local provincial layers. The Empress Dowager and her supporters, on the contrary, they want to follow the Japanese model to have more power in the royal house hands. Xiu Shaohui and her family joined this, and Xiu Shaohui even played. She, she was the editorial writer for a new constitutional journal, um, daily actually, a daily, an official daily published by the governor of the South. And her husband and brother-in-law were serving on the staff. She was invited to draft editorial for this new daily. Another editorial tried to tell people what a constitutional structure is, and along with many scientific and all kinds of knowledge, showing her exquisite writing style and extremely broad knowledge about modern time period. And she always tells people, trying to tie the reform ideas to the Chinese tradition. The purpose is for people, for people to get easier access to all this. And she was quite successful in doing that. Unfortunately, because the Manchu regime didn't want to follow all these good advices, too selfish, Xiu Shaohui could, could recognize that. Her last long poem about her reform movement, very nice. She wrote many, many long poems. I named her poem as kind of a poetic history of late Qing China. Originally, I want to use that as my book title, but uh, my editor wanted it to be like uh, they could uh, for easier for people to search. So they will have gender, po- politics, politics instantly. But anyway, it's really a, a very important political history about China of that time period. And her last long poem, she already sensed that problem. So the poem ended in a bit, some pessimistic way. I never read any kind of pessimistic tone in her other poems until this one. Mm-hmm. So now when I look back, I could tell this woman she could foresee the problems. She could foresee that the constitutional reform would fail, that China would enter a very difficult time period. She was right. She died on the eve of the Republican Revolution, which was which initiated the bloody 100-year history of China in the modern times. So the last conclusion I talked about why Xu Shaohui and her, her comrades were totally forgotten, along with their newspapers, the reform movement, their publications. This doesn't mean that they didn't have influence at the time. It doesn't mean that their work, their efforts were insignificant. It only tells us that modern China had made its own choice. The choice was the revolutionary sons 
preferred, more nationalistic and a violent sister. You know, the later women's journals tend to be very violent. Following social Darwinism, they called upon bloody termination of the Manchu regime because they were barbarians. And then even further, the Communist Revolution again repeated this. Women again became the subservient followers of men's new revolutionary patriarchy to repeat their discourse. And these revolutionary men chose revolutionary women, violent women, over their more culturally abided, traditional, traditional abided, more smooth, but more creative, original uh, women reformers. I think that's very unfortunate. So I feel it's my duty today to read, to tell the story, this story, missing page of Chinese history to the world. And that's exactly what your book does. So thank you for writing it, Nan Shu. You, you resurrect not only the reform movement that's been forgotten, but, but particularly the women's role in that reform. So yes. thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you so much. And would you mind just telling before we wrap up what you're planning to do in a next book project, perhaps? Oh, yes. Now I have to go back to my promise to myself to do the comparison of the two traditions, the worthy ladies versus the example women tradition. And now I have expanded it into the realm of the entire Sinosphere, meaning China, Japan, Korea, and Vietnam. Because all four countries share the similar cultural tradition and uh, share this, the same writing system, classical Chinese, and uh, they, every country produced the works uh, following these two genres. It's very challenging and, uh, and uh, exciting. Well, I think it was a wonderful detour that you took, and I wish you luck in, in going back to that original project. And thank you again for talking to us, Nanshu Kian, about your book today. The book is called Politics, Poetics, and Gender in Late Qing China, Xie Shua Wei and the Era of Reform. So thank you again, Nanshu. Bye-bye. Thank you, Judy. Bye-bye. Thank you.